Thanks, music team. You guys always do a great job every week. Uh, thank you for your service to the church. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, any questions you may have, any comments, concerns, uh, maybe some things you need help with or something you want to talk through, please uh, do not hesitate to come find me after service is over or any one of the other elders. And whether we say that every Sunday or not, uh, this is always a case uh, that we're here for you, and we want you to feel free to come and speak with any of us about pretty much anything. Now, this time I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 20 and verse 9 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 879 if you are using a church Bible, page 879. Luke chapter 20 and verse 9. And before we look at our text together, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship. And as we come to your word, would you please uh, convict our hearts of its truth? Uh, it's so easy for us to just be wrapped up in our own lives and, and to be stressed or anxious or even intoxicated with things that don't even really last that long. And we can lose sight of, of the very perspective we need. And so... We ask that by your mercy, you would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and that you'd open our eyes to see where we are really at in relation to him. Would you help us to understand your love for us, your grace, your mercy, your goodness, uh, that there would be no way that we could ever miss it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we come to a text this morning, which is a passage uh, that is really about wasted privilege uh, and missed opportunity. There's a deep tragedy in it and, and also a great offense from it that many will not uh, recognize the time at hand nor the opportunity before them to come to know God uh, despite him offering chance after chance and privilege after privilege and event after event. And, and there's really uh, no comfortable way to talk about it. But, but Jesus here is so direct and so clear that there's no avoiding the main issue of this text. Uh, in a tone which is fitting for this final week of his life. It's as if his sense of the end makes the urgency of what he is pleading all the more potent and the intensity of his appeal all the more confrontational. Uh, this final week of Jesus' life here just a couple of days away from his own crucifixion seems to clarify uh, the issue even more. Uh, here it is. Jesus is giving to the very ones with the most privilege and opportunity. He gives to them a parable to appeal to them to not waste it. And I think there's something here for us as well because uh, it's often easier to see error in someone else than to see it in the mirror. I think there's something for us here so that we would not waste the opportunity and privilege that God has given to each of us. We read in verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. You know, there's, a, a, again, tragedy and there's offense and wasted privilege. And, and here we have in this parable, this visual uh, of these continual layers of mercy being given and increasing opportunities to respond to that mercy. 
And at the same time, we see that being met with successive layers of rejection and even this increasing wickedness of spurning those opportunities. We see this pattern, mercy, rejection, more mercy, more rejection, and then even more after that, which is met with even more of the same. And the storyline of this parable is both uh, familiar and unfamiliar to the people at the same time. It's familiar in the sense that landowners would often rent out their land to tenant farmers who would work that land and give the owner his share while also getting benefit from the land for their own share. The owner gets some yield, we get some yield. This concept would have been entirely familiar for those hearing this parable in the first century. It's a similar concept to things we see in our century. But what is unfamiliar is this. Here, the tenants, they utterly reject the landlord's attempts to get what is rightfully is. Now, this does occasionally happen then and now. That's not the unfamiliar part. The unfamiliar part is that landlords would actually have people to make sure that the payment would be made. You didn't mess with landlords in this time because they have power. They have money. They have juice. And according to some commentators, they had a reputation in their first century that if you didn't pay a particular kind of visit would be made to make sure that you got the message and that you don't cross this landlord and that you don't breach this agreement. Each landlord would have some hired muscle. The unfamiliar part of this parable is the fact that this landlord is not acting like most landlords. He doesn't exact payment with force. And even when the first of his servants returns, not just empty-handed, but black-eyed too, he still doesn't retaliate with force. But instead, he actually sends a second servant. And, and this is where the audience would be shaking their collective head. This landlord is not like the other landlords. And then the second one comes back and listen to the escalation of verse 11. They not only beat him, but they shame him because somehow physical abuse is not enough. We want to embarrass you as well. And I know, don't know if you've ever heard the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, did this landlord really expect a change? Now, again, at this point, the audience, any listener, any moviegoer watching the same thing happen is almost begging, uh, give to them what they deserve. I mean, use your crew, use the muscle. How many servants of yours have to suffer? These people aren't budging. You're almost enabling the bad behavior at this point because you're too mercifully withholding consequences. And then we find the landlord sending yet the third servant of his and predictably, they beat him, and then they cast him out, which I think is another form of escalation. And so continuing layers of mercy, increasing opportunities to respond, which is just met with successive layers of rejection and this ongoing wickedness. Now, Jesus is not ultimately talking about bad tenants and a too nice landlord, is he? No, he's actually speaking about the entire history of Israel in a nutshell. The most privileged people of the world at the time, a nation really formed from a single person, a single family, given the covenants, given the law, given revelation, given the Old Testament. If you're in your Bible reading plan, you're reading how so many kings and their sons live wickedly as a pattern, and the Lord would send prophet after prophet and mouthpiece after mouthpiece to deliver the message to his people to repent and to change and to turn, and to come back to him, and what would happen to these prophets, all of the above. Elijah is hated. He has to run for his life. Jeremiah is shamed and rejected and thrown into a pit. Zechariah murdered. The list goes on and on. John the Baptist being really the last of the Old Testament prophets, he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what happens to him? He gets his head cut off. 
because he calls out a man in power to turn away from his sin. He loses his head for that one. Jeremiah 26.5 speaks of how the Lord sent servant prophet after servant prophet urgently, and they had not listened. Jeremiah 24, the same. I mean, these kinds of verses are all over the Old Testament. And so this parable really lays out Israel's entire history, which contains this stunning contrast of truths. First, that God is truly merciful and patient and long-suffering and searching and inviting, and he has this history of sending servants to the people to invite them back to him, and two, that humanity here evidenced in the people of Israel has this history of getting harder and harder crueler and crueler and more rejecting of each and every privilege and opportunity that God has graciously given. Israel has this place of honor among all the nations of the world, and still it's the same old story. And I don't think that this is just Israel. I'm sure we can just reflect upon our own biographies and remember opportunity after opportunity where the Lord sought us, perhaps sent people to us, had messages for us, situations that beckoned us to look up rather than down, consciences that kept us awake at night, uh, people near to us that would tap us on the shoulder, so to speak, to try and turn us around, even illnesses and down times to wake us up. And God just ever being so patient in inviting us to repent even after we ignore these advances repeatedly. And, and understanding uh, this long-suffering really makes his mercy uh, all the more amazing. Verse 13, we continue. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You know, there's tragedy, again, in wasted opportunity. There's a deep offense and rejected uh, privilege. And, and here we have really the pinnacle of mercy. This is the absolute height of grace. And right next to it, we have the pinnacle of wasting it. We have the absolute height of wickedness. The owner of the vineyard, he asked himself the question, what shall I do? And, and he asked this question not because he's uh, ditzy or somewhat confused and is trying to figure out, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm just not that sharp. No, instead, I think really contextually the nuance is, what more can I do? What more shall I do? And with this hope in his eyes and, and with nothing more valuable for him to give, nothing more representative of him, nothing more precious to him, he sends his son. And the parable is clear that this is not just a son, which is magnanimous enough as it is, but the single thing highlighted by the son is that this is my beloved son. That if there's anything that characterizes my relationship with him, it is that of love. This is one whom they should respect. Now, what more can the landlord do? I mean, is there anything more that he can send? Uh, but a life he perhaps values even more than his own. This isn't a mere servant. This isn't a simple messenger. This is the heir. I mean, this is the owner as well. And if you're listening to this parable live, I don't know that anyone in this crowd shares the same hope as his vineyard owner. I mean, everyone in the audience has already written off this group of tenants and is waiting and wanting some retribution give to them what they deserve. And the most puzzling thing is the mentality of this landlord. 
That, that after a series of servants is rejected, the very next thing you offer is not punitive punishment. It's not judgment, which is rightfully what they have earned. But the next thing you offer is the most precious thing to you. Why would anyone offer this to a people like them? I mean, that's the entire wonder of the parable thus far. And really, it's the ongoing wonder of all of creation. All for what? Hope? That perhaps they will respect them? All of this risk, all of this potential cost, all for some grapes in a vineyard? And this is where the parable starts to break down, doesn't it? Because again, this is not about grapes and whatnot. Jesus isn't longing for grapes. He's longing for hearts with this stunning patience and this wonderful, merciful love, a love, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, a love which hopes all things. This is the love of hope. And this hope, is, it's, it's not naive. It's a love which is fully cognizant of the condition of the people he sets his love upon. It's not like he doesn't know that people can be this bad. I, I mean, let's just look at the tenants for a moment and examine their condition just a little bit, even their thoughts. In what world do they think that they can beat, shame, cast out three servants in a row, and then when being sent, the heir, the beloved son, in what world do they think that if we kill this one, we're going to get it all? It doesn't make any kind of sense. Do you think that if someone kills one of my sons, I'm going to give them my house? It doesn't make any kind of sense. And, and I think this shows to us this hardening uh, mind-twisting uh, effect of sin that as mercy is rejected more and more and, and opportunity is scorned and as privilege is wasted, it really begins to change how even the brain can think. There is this progression. I mean, the first rejection of the first servant, perhaps maybe the servant pressed them too hard and they beat him up. I don't know. But it does take some decisiveness to do something like that, some gall. And, and then the second one comes, and I bet that beating is a little bit easier to give. I mean, you've done it once before. Nothing bad happened to you. Why not do it again? And so there you even heighten it and shame them. Sin always wants more. It takes you by the hand and leads you to worse and worse things. You don't always know how far you're going to go. And then the third and, and whatnot, and there's this dulling effect of the conscience. We've done this before. It's business as usual. And then the son, I mean, we've done whatever we've wanted. And there's been literally nothing of consequence. Must not be that bad. Kill the guy. Destroy the son. I bet we are going to benefit massively from it, right? I mean, this is what sin does to the human heart and the mind. It convinces us that this will bring us the most joy. Lying's going to give me the biggest benefit. Cheating, the best return. Being impure, the highest satisfaction. This or that, the bigger buzz. Divorce is going to give me true freedom. Anger, real satisfaction. This wrong relationship, true intimacy. And then we continue down this path, and that path deadens the very senses that are supposed to awaken us. And this is all sin of various sorts, and it's doing the same thing in the minds and the hearts of people owned by it today. At first, we want what we want. And true, it may not be the most morally high decision we've made, but there's a payout for it a bit of satisfaction, and then the pattern begins to set in. It becomes easier, and then it gets heightened. Whether it be greed, anger, lust, pride, bitterness, it just becomes stronger. And then when someone wants to call us out, get out of my face. Or simply passive avoidance. Because I don't want to hear from the people who will keep me accountable. I don't want to sit in the preaching of the word. 
I want to create distance from the community. This is why we emphasize uh, intimate church membership so much and being here and connecting us as an active part of the family. There's safety there because when we're neck deep, but when we are neck deep, that's not what we want. And we begin to genuinely believe we're actually on a better path which is going to contain this massive payout, and there's no longer anyone to call us out on it. And of course, in our minds, we have every justification for, oh, it's because of this and this and that and that, but our minds at that point are already compromised. This is what sin does. It removes our logic from us. Whether you want to cheat on your wife or get into drugs or sacrifice the family on the altar of more cash, it doesn't make any sense. There's a litany of witnesses and testimonies who lived that way and regretted it. But again, the heart can destroy the mind. And this can go on and on until we reject the son altogether. The scriptures are clear of this deadening, hardening effect of ongoing sinfulness. And perhaps nowhere do we see it as clearly as we do in this parable and in what this parable represents. We have tenant farmers who literally think that if they kill the son, they're going to get the vineyard. That's insanity. But they're representing the religious leaders of Israel who think that if they kill Jesus, they're going to get their own kingdoms instead of his, which is insanity. But this is how hard they have become because with each opportunity scorned and each privilege wasted, the soul-numbing and soul-destroying impact takes over more and more. You know, if you're neck deep in it and the Spirit of God is convicting you of it, get out from under it. Reach out to Jesus. Reach out to your church family before sin deadens you anymore. God is inviting you to return to him. But I bring this up not only to highlight this hardening effect of sin on the conscience and upon the mind, but I bring this up to highlight again the fact that Jesus, in the last week of his life, he's still, still appealing to his own murderers. He still is, rather than giving to them what they already deserve. I mean, he's about to be crucified, and even here, just days away, he's pleading with them. I mean, what an opportunity. What a privilege that the Son of God is appealing to those who will kill him. And Jesus is not some third-party narrator of this parable. Jesus is giving to the people his own story. He says, I'm speaking to you about myself. I'm speaking to you about my Father. Miss what the father said in Luke 3.22. You are my beloved son. It's what he reiterates in the transfiguration, Luke 9.35. This is my son. I am the son. I am my father's beloved. And he has sent me to you. And this isn't the first time he sent someone to you. No, he has been pursuing you over and over again and again through situations, circumstances, through people he has put into your lives, through thoughts that have gone into your mind by a conscience that has stricken you. And for Israel, through prophets and words and captivity and Roman occupation, each a gift of mercy, each a gracious opportunity. And you've kept rejecting him. You've kept spurning him. You've kept shaming him. And here it is that he has now given to you everything. He has given to you his son. He has given to you himself. There is nothing more that he can give. And Jesus already knows that they're not going to listen. And he already knows that they're not going to respond. Because the death in the parable of the beloved son 
is going to be the death of himself upon the cross for the sins of his people. And yet he still does it. He is appealing to them unto the very end. This is uh, the greatest privilege ever given. This is the most supreme opportunity ever afforded. And to reject it is the most horrific tragedy imaginable and the biggest offense any person could ever give to God himself. We continue in verse, uh, the second half of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is that, is this that is written? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's a tragedy and wasted privilege, and there is a deep, a deep offense in rejected opportunity. We must not think that because God is long-suffering and kind and patient and merciful and gracious and loving and, and hoping, we must not think that because God is all of these beautiful things that he takes the rejection of his son lightly at all. And this is where those hearing the parable, it begins to hit them because now they know, they know that Jesus is speaking about himself and they know Jesus is speaking about themselves. And Luke, look at what he writes in verse 17. He looked directly at them. He is in their eye. And I think there's pity. I think there is compassion and grief. And it's a longing look of invitation and there's this gravity. You know what you're doing. You know what you are about to do. I know what you are planning. I'm telling you right here what your sinful hearts are in the process of. I mean, this is it. This is your last chance. I'm looking you in the eye, and I'm laying out before you your game plan. There, make no mistake. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? I'm telling you right now, the judgment which has been so mercifully delayed. You have the opportunity right now to turn because the judgment will inevitably come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others, which is an allusion to how the rejection of the people of, and leadership of Israel opens the doors for the nations and the inclusion of the Gentiles, which is people like me and people like you. And this is, is where those listening, they know this is about us. They understand the parable for they say, surely not. God's not gonna take the position of privilege from us. Why? Because those years of mercy have made them feel entitled to it. But if people will not use a privilege, an opportunity of the Son in their lives, He will take it and give it to those who will use it. God will inevitably reject those who reject Jesus Christ. And let me uh, read to you what Ligon Duncan says about this text. I think he says it really well. Jesus in His love, notice what He's doing. He's lifting up the veil of the future and he's saying to you, I want you to see what is going to happen to all those who reject me and who reject the gospel. He does this because he loves us. 
He shows us what is coming because he knows it's easy to look at this life and think, I'm going to get by with my sin. I'm going to prosper in my sin. I'm going to be happy in my sin. And there are going to be no consequences for my sin. And so he lifts the veil of the future and says, I want to show you what is going to happen to all who reject me. And he does this because of his love and because of his kindness. It's Satan who wants us to be blind to the future consequences of sin and to the certain final judgment of God against all who reject him. Satan wants us to be blind so that when you hear someone or read something ensuring you that there will be no final consequence for the rejection of God, the rejection of Christ, the rejection of the word, the rejection of the gospel, you may always be assured that your tongue speaks with a forked tongue. Satan does not want you to see the future certain final judgment. Jesus, who loves you, does want you to see it, and he speaks this truth so that we might see the certain judgment and repent of our sins. And I think it's interesting that those who do talk about these things are often labeled as unloving and ungracious, and those who hide them are often labeled the opposite. But those who hide them, I think, are doing more the work of Satan than they are the work of God. And to drive this point further, Jesus quotes scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. I mean, it's like they threw Jesus away like this useless rock. You're just in my way, Jesus. You serve no purpose in my life. You're preventing me from what I'm trying to do when Jesus is the stone which is essential to the entire structure. In rejecting Jesus, they've rejected the one by which everything fits together. And the same stone, you fall on it, you'll be broken. It falls on you, you'll be crushed because he is not some insignificant person that we can disregard or deem irrelevant in each of our lives this morning. Jesus Christ is literally everything. And in him, you'll find the love of your life and the purpose of your existence in receiving him or you will be smashed to pieces and there really is no middle ground. But we're each given the privilege and the opportunity even now to know him, to love him and be loved by him, to worship him and to enjoy him now and forevermore and understand with each passing day the depths of his grace and kindness, to turn from sin that hardens and wants to destroy us anyway. We're each given this privilege and opportunity to love like he loves, to be patient like he is patient, to seek and to save the lost, to appeal to even our enemies, to forgive and grant mercy, to feel the weight of his cross, and to clarify, therefore, every successive step of our lives as to what it is that really matters and what it is that doesn't. We must not waste our privilege, which is afforded to us, and miss the opportunity that God has granted to each of us in his son, Jesus, for there will be deep tragedy in it and great offense from it that beckons judgment, or we can turn to Christ and be saved and saved to the utmost. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your long-suffering. Where would we be without it? We thank you that you did not quit after one servant, nor two servants, nor three servants, but that you give us your son, you give us your everything, and I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see how truly precious he really is, that he might be everything to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.